Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. That's us in his temple crying glory to him today. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is greater than all gods. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. I've been in contact with uh, my good friend, Bob Cosbo, who pastors in Marshalltown, and uh, they've been hit pretty hard with a lot of devastation in that community. So I would just appreciate you praying, if you haven't, uh, or continuing to pray for uh, them, uh, folks in Pella, folks in Bondurant, who've been hit pretty hard by the, the devastation there. They have a lot of people that are around them, but uh, it's uh, crazy, as many of us know, after the floods recently, then they've been hit with a tornado, and so it's... Uh, difficult time. I'd invite you to pray with me if you would. Father, we, we sing how great is our God. And now as we take a few moments to continue our worship of you through the study of your word, I pray that you would continue to expand our understanding of your greatness and that you would use our understanding to impact our lives for your glory and the gain of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to watch this video clip. Eight, seven, and ten. Tenth inning, game seven of the World Series in 2016, and the Cubs win. All Cubby fans for decades and centuries had reason to raise the roof. They had reason to celebrate. They were excited. I... I'm sorry that my, my grandma wasn't, uh, wasn't alive to, to watch it, but uh, she was a diehard Cubs fan for all the years they never won. And so those who are celebrating, there's a reason. The children of Israel had reason to celebrate too. They marched around Jericho for seven times, seven days, and then at the end they all raised the roof and down came the walls of Jericho and they were celebrating. We have different reasons for celebrating different reasons for raising the roof. Some of them are good and some of them maybe not so, you know, eternally significant like a win of a World Series. But, and then they vary in intensity as well. But as we turn today to Psalm 33, we look at a passage of Scripture in which God shows the people of God that it's right to raise the roof. It's fitting for God's people to celebrate and to be joyous and to be boisterous in our celebration of who God is. Because of His works and because of His Word, we see His loving kindness, His loyal love manifest 
to us. And that is a great reason for us to raise the roof in jubilation. In Psalm 32, the psalmist has revealed to us the, the blessedness of pardon and then being restored into right relationship with God. And so the, the joy, the relief, and the pardon of restored relationship that's described in, ver, in Psalm 32 is now demonstrated in jubilant celebration in Psalm 33. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there because in this psalm, I see three pillars upon which our conviction that it's right for us to raise the roof resting. Three pillars upon which our conviction that it's right to raise the roof rests. I'm going to read through the text and then we'll begin to dissect it. So we're going to see the anatomy and then we're going to do the dissection, okay? Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy, for the word of the Lord is upright, and all his works work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts thereof by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from his dwelling place. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. The king is not saved by his mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope in his loving kindness. To deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine, our soul, awaits, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. The first pillar that I see in the text is a call, our call to praise the Lord or praise God in verses 1 through 3. And the tone is of celebration. He starts out and he calls us to raise the roof. But who does he call to raise the roof? Who's it directed at? Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. So who are the righteous ones? I want you to look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, uh, we see the story of Abraham, or we hear about Abraham, and it says, Then he believed in the Lord, as is Abraham, and he, that is God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Paul picks this up in the same idea in Romans chapter 4, in verse 5. Uh, Roman, Paul says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. 
We saw in the first service, someone uh, brought out and mentioned in Philippians chapter 4, in verse 9, Paul was trusting not in his own works, but in the righteousness that comes by faith. So it's those who trust in the one who justifies the ungodly. So righteousness, those who are righteous, the righteous ones are the ones who are righteous by faith. All who turn from trusting in themselves to trusting in Christ's death as the payment they deserve are then declared righteous. And Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, having been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. Those who aren't righteous by faith have no peace with God. They are not reconciled to God. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He made him who knew no sin. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As theologians call it, the divine transfer. The sinlessness or the sinless Christ, the one upon whom there, was, there is no sin, took upon himself our sin and our punishment. So that all who would trust in him might have his righteousness placed on them. Theological word imputed to them. So that they would be righteous, that we would be righteous. Even though we are declared righteous, we don't always practically live that out, but we are, in effect, positionally righteous before a holy God. There are six commands, or at least six commands in the text, that call us to praise God, to raise the roof. If you look at the text, it begins, sing for joy in the Lord. Next phrase, praise is becoming. Then verse 2, give thanks. Then you see in the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3, sing praises, or sing to Him. End of verse 3 is play skillfully. And then shout for joy. Well, I don't know. Sing, praise, shout. Sounds like they're making noise. I'm sure we're kind of not there most of the time. It's like I come to church and I go, do we raise the roof? Or do we just kind of go through the motions? Shout joyfully. It's loud. Shout joyfully with human voices and, and with instruments. This is, the, you know, the Psalms are their worship manual. They were singing and praising God with instruments. It's uh, God's endorsement of the use of instruments in worship. It's part of what God calls us to, to sing with our voices. Now, it's not supposed to be pandemonium. It's not supposed to be chaos, but it's supposed to be joyous. And it should be loud, at least some of the time. Now, there are times when it's a little sober and it's a little somber and it's a little more contemplative. But this is a joyous thing. The Psalter calls us to praise God loudly with our voices. And he says, it's becoming. Well, now, that's the New American Standard. Some of you have a different translation that says it's fitting or it should happen, which means it's, it's expected, it's normal, it's what you would think would happen. When the Cubs won the World Series, I would expect that there would be celebration on the part of the players and on the part of the fans. That's just something that should happen. 
It's quite fitting for God's people to enthusiastically praise God. As I sat in the um, St. Ambrose Cathedral downtown last fall and listened to the, the Mass in C minor being played and sung and uh, the antiphonal singing and stuff, it was like, whoa, that was impressive. What's wrong with us? You know, we praise God. It should happen. It should be something that's there. And then he says in verse 3, sing to God a new song. And it's, uh, you know, likely a reference to the spontaneous outpouring of praise that comes from a fresh awareness of God's grace and God's mercy. It's not new truth that's celebrated. It's old truth celebrated in a new way, a fresh way. It's like, oh, yeah, mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. And it's joy. It's like, wow, yeah, it hit me in a fresh way as it hasn't hit me before. And so God calls us to do this. I like the way uh, Leupold states it. He says, the, the new song is one which springs freshly from a thankful and rejoicing heart. So the, the qualities of worship that I see in verses 1 through 3 are these. First of all, it's focused. It's focused on God. You know, it's interesting because I was just talking to some friends late, uh, the other day, and it's like we, we go to church or we go to a, a conference or something and say, well, you know, how was the band? Oh, they were really good. They were really good. Well, are we there to worship the band? You know? Oh, how was the preaching? Oh, it, it was, well, it wasn't as good as it should have been, you know. Well, we're there to worship God. Our focus is on Him, not on us. And yet we make it all about us. And we make it, well, you know, I don't know. I didn't get my money's worth that day. It was, you know, the, the band was kind of yucky. And, you know, the songs they picked, I really didn't really like them. And it's like, well, tough. Were you worshiping God? Now, if the songs were not glorifying to God, that's another thing. Okay? If they were not pointing to the King of Kings, that's a different story. So it should be focused on God. It, it should be some fervor in it. There should be some intensity. There should be some sense in which we are juiced up about God. And then there should be some finesse. They played skillfully. I find it fascinating. Read through that sometime. It's just, it says, shout skillfully. Or here it is. It says in verse uh, 1, sing for joy in the Lord, O your righteous ones. Praise is becoming. Give thanks to the Lord. Verse 2, sing praises him with a harp. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. How do you play skillfully with a shout of joy? I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how I do that. I don't know that they're talking. I think he's, he's mixing the metaphors. You know, you can play skillfully with joy. You can sing and shout joyfully, but to play skillfully with a shout of joy, maybe it's to mean you mix them both together. I don't know, but there should be fervor. There should be finesse. And finally, there should be a freshness in our worship. Second pillar upon which our conviction that it's right to raise the roof is seen in verses 4 through 19. And it's our cause for praise. Look at verse 4. The word for is the first word in verse 4. And for, in the English language, usually indicates a reason or a cause or a purpose. And so the purpose that's laid out in the text, in the tone here, is exaltation. 
And he says, For the word of the Lord is upright. Why should we sing a new song or raise the roof? The word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. And there is the essence of it. The word and the work of God, the words of God and the works of God, are what give rise to our praise to God, because in them we see the loyal love of God. I want you to look with me at three activities that fuel our praise. Fuel it, but also actually form our praise, or part of the content of our praise. First of all, the superior conduct of God. Several superior qualities of God's conduct are seen in verses 3 and 4, or 4 and 5. For the word of the Lord is upright. And the Hebrew word for upright really means dependable. It's trustworthy. It's to be relied on. What God says can be counted on without question. And then the first description of his work, if you read the rest of verse 4, and all his work, all his work, all his work is done in faithfulness. Same idea. It's dependable. His word and his work is dependable. It's trustworthy. My grandpa used to wear My dad's dad used to wear Wolverine work shoes, okay? Because Wolverine work shoes were dependable. You could count on them. Year in and year out, they never wore out. They were good, reliable, just like Maytag washing machines used to be reliable. Remember the Maytag man? He always sat around doing nothing, right? Now, not so true anymore, right? But anyhow, they were dependable. God's word and his works are dependable can be trusted year after year. God's precepts, God's promises, God's purposes, God's plans are always to be trusted. We can trust in them no matter what. Then we see in the next phrase, it says, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Verse 5, he loves righteousness and justice. His works are equitable. They're not just dependable, but they're equitable. They're fair. They're just Because he loves righteousness and justice, that's how he deals with us, with righteousness and justice. That's what he demands, and that's what he delivers in his relationship with people. He's so much different than the ways of the world. I read an article once about uh, America's worst judges. And there was a man who was walking along, and he was hit by a driver who crossed over the the line uh, on the lane of traffic. And the man had like a thousand stitches, the, the guy, the victim, okay, and permanent scarring. Now, here's what the judge ruled when they brought the driver to, to convict him of this crime. Uh, there was a breathalyzer test showing that the, the driver who hit the man was his blood alcohol level was twice the legal limit, okay? The judge ruled that the man was so inebriated that he was not intelligibly able to deny the breathalyzer test, and therefore the breathalyzer test could not be used as evidence against him in the court. That guy should never have graduated from law school. And if he did, he should never have been put in a position of it. This is horrible. This is not dependable. This is not reliable. This is absolutely not equitable. But God is equitable. What he does and what he says and the way he operates is absolutely 
to be depended upon. And finally, we see in verse 5 that God is also loyal. The, it, it, it says here that he, his, the earth is full of his loving kindness. This is the Hebrew word chesed, which means his loyal love. He is absolutely committed to following through with his loyal love. When I was in high school, Dad let me drive our, our 67 Chevy pickup. It was a straight six with a three-speed on the column. Uh, uh, that's how I learned to drive, was a three-speed on the column, you know, the clutch. It was kind of fun. I wish it had been a four-speed, but, you know, it's, you can't live for everything. You have to do with what you got. But it was a straight six, and I tell you what, every day in the winter you could count on that thing starting. Once to the floor... To set the choke, because we didn't have all these automatic chokes and all that garbage, you just push once to the floor, turn, push the clutch in, whoosh, boom, start right off. Dependable, reliable. It was a loyally starting machine. God is absolutely loyal to his people. In his words and his works, he's dependable. God is equitable, and God is loyal. Now, think about that in contrast to us. At best, we are unpredictable. And at worst, we are hypocritical. We're not all that dependable. We're not all that equitable. And most of us are fickle from one time or another, you know. It depends on, you know, how many Cub fans were Cub fans for the whole duration. You know, there's a lot of fickle Cub fans, you know. And then they, they ride the coattails into the World Series, and yay, I'm a Cubs fan. Now I got a hat, now I got a World Series shirt, and I'm a good guy, right? Or a good gal. Not so much. But God is dependable. And he's equitable, and he is loyal in all that he does. Now, we see, second of all, not only do we see his um, conduct is superior, but his sovereign control over creation in verses 6 through 11. It's interesting to me that the character of God, his dependability, his equitability, his loyalty, is now combined, his, his work and his word is combined with how that work and word play out in creation. And so we see the, the character of God and the connection between his word and his works. He's the maker of all, first of all. Verse 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts thereof by the breath of his mouth. And the psalmist is like calling to mind Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 and following. Because there are eight times the text says, then God said, then God said, then God said, then God said, then God said. And after each then God said is a poof, a creation. Then God said, let there be light. Boom, there's light. Then God said, let there be an expanse. Boom, there's an expanse. Then God said, let the water separate between you know, the waters and the land, and there will the, the be vegetation. Boom, and there was waters and the land and vegetation. Then let the sun, moon, and the stars appear. Boom, there was sun, moon, and stars, and they appeared. Then let there be all kinds of birds and things and, and things that, that swim in the sea. Boom, then it was there. God made it. And by the word of the Lord, so you see his dependability, and then boom, it happens. And God made it, his sovereign control over all of creation. God spoke. I remember I mean, on many occasions, I, but God's blessed me with the ability to stand at the ocean, different oceans, and look out over the vast expanse of water before me. And then sometimes even had the privilege of sticking my head in the water with a, a snorkel mask on and seeing what's underneath. And I'm thinking, whoa, the immensity of what God has created. The massiveness and the power. If you stand at the ocean and you hear its 
uh, power. It's like you feel undone. I mean, now maybe you don't, okay? I did. I'm not, I shouldn't put that on you, but I did. Especially when you hear the crashing waves in the Pacific Northwest. Or you hear the, the constant roar of the ocean. Or if, like one time, Marla and I were at the edge of the hurricane and we saw the, the effects of the, of the hurricane, but from a long ways away, okay? So, but still, it's like, whoa, God's power is massive. And he spoke it into being. And that is enough. It should be enough. It should be enough to dwarf us and to cause us to stand in awe. This is what he says in verse uh, 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. And let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of him because of his creation. Because of his creation. He's the maker of all, but he's also the manager of all. Look at verses 10 and 11. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the, of the people. God orders all of life according to his secret and his divine plans. Hey, think about it. Look at, remember your little Bible history? Think about Pharaoh's attempt to enslave the children of Israel. Think about Haman's attempt to destroy the Jewish people. Frustrated, frustrated, frustrated. How? By God. Time and time again, you read through the Old Testament, and God says, yeah, don't sweat it. I got this covered. And then he brings down hailstones from heaven. Boom, they're all gone. Sennacherib and 185,000 Assyrians. Boom, they're done. Why? Because God acted. Because God frustrates the counsel of the wicked. I want you to look at Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, because verse 11 in Psalm 33 kind of echoes uh, that. Many are the plans of the man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. The counsel of the Lord, it will stand. Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. God is in charge. Think about the rich man in Luke chapter 12. Oh, yeah, I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to build this, uh, my bigger barns and eat, drink, and be merry. And God says what? You fool. You think you got life figured out? No, not so much. I have it figured out. I'm the one who's in charge of it. You fool. See, God's providential control is a cause for rejoicing in the heart of the righteous. Why? Because God is dependable. Because God is equitable. Because God is loyal. By contrast, human beings and our plans are what? If God is dependable, we're unreliable. Okay? Or actually, maybe even we lie, you know, untruthful. If God is equitable, you know, we are unjust. And if God is loyal, we are unreliable, unjust, and unfaithful. But Romans chapter 8, and this is a passage many of you are very familiar with, so I'm just going to kind of mention it, and, and it's a verse that sometimes we take glibly, but if you read Romans 8, uh, you know, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. And then he goes on to say in 28 through 30 that his purpose is what? To conform us to the image of Christ. The good that God has planned for us is to conform us to the image of Christ. And so when whatever happens, you know, whatever God brings is designed for the good purpose 
of conforming us to Christ so we can praise him when what he brings is delightful and when what he brings is difficult because the delightful and the difficult both serve his greater purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ. And it frees us from having to trust in or rely on or put too much stock in our bank statement or our physical health or the loss of our reputation doesn't have to be devastating or our physical health's demise doesn't have to be devastating. Why? Because God is still in charge. He hasn't lost control. We don't have to put our hope in the next election or the certain politician, that that one is the one that's going to solve. No, God is still in charge whether we accept it or not. God is still running the show. And finally, we see special care, his special care in verses 12 through 19. And this is a particularly interesting passage, a part of it to me, because if you read verse 12, it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord of the people whom he has chosen for his inheritance. Uh, again, especially, particularly meant for the people of Israel. Okay? But it is true that a nation that honors the Lord, he says righteousness exalts a nation. Okay? A nation that honors the Lord will experience his blessing. The ones who reject God will experience his cursing. Now, it may not all happen right at now, and it, you can say, oh, well, I know about this nation over here. And, okay, talk to me later, okay? But in general, it's true. And so while I would say that I don't think America was ever a Christian nation, you know, it is certainly true that the reverence for God and adherence to truth and respect for God's word and the practice of biblical morality in the in the early among the early fathers of the American experiment certainly was a, a cause for God's blessing on this land. I mean, as Alexander de Tocqueville, I think he said that, that America is great because America is good. And that's generally true. Was generally true. But now, America is hostile as a, as a whole towards Christianity. Increasingly intolerant of Christianity, increasingly tolerant of other forms of spirituality. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. This is the, the call of God to, that he has a special care on, on those who, who care for him and who follow him. And then you see that we are, not only are we privileged when we are following God, but we are paid attention to. In verses 13 through 19, it's an interesting thing because he moves right from blessed are the nation whose God is the Lord into this statement. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. That's everybody, right? So I see in this text, in these verses, there is a contrast that's set up. A contrast between what God's, God's uh, consciousness and God's understanding, his cognizance of the entire world, in contrast to his care for his people who are part of that bigger world. So he says, I see everybody. He sees all. Hebrews 4.13. 
All things are naked and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So if you're here this morning and you don't really give a rip about God or you're not sure about God, guess what? He cares about you. He sees you. He knows you. He sees everything you do. He knows everything you do. He knows everywhere you go. He knows whatever you think, say, or do. That's true for all of us. No secrets with God. I remember standing on the eastern slopes of the, of the Bighorn Mountains in central Wyoming, looking east. And you can see on a clear day, you can see for a long ways. You can see all of the eastern sagebrush of eastern Wyoming. You may be even able to see into South Dakota, but you can't see everything. God sees everything. He sees every place. This is the theological term, is his omniscience. Okay, he's all-knowing. He sees it all. Or you could use his omnipresence or whatever, but he is aware of everything. I think more omniscience here. He is aware of it all. And he says these things. If you read and look with me, he says, um, he sees from his dwelling place, he understands. It's interesting. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He fashions our hearts. And if you read Psalm 139, not only does he fashion our heart, he formed us when we were still in our mother's womb. He fashions and he forms us. He knows us and he knows all of our thoughts and our deeds. And get this, and we trust in this stupid stuff. Verses 16 and 17. The king is not saved by his great army. The warrior is not saved by his great strength. The horse is a, is a, a false hope in the, in the thing of battle. It's a false hope because we trust in these things, and we do. They trusted in their military might. They trusted in their physical strength. They trusted in their horses and their arm. We trust in that kind of stuff. Well, how many nukes do we have versus how many do the Russians have, you know? Uh, how many, which, what's our power to do? We trust in our physical strength. You know, I mean, I, we live along the trail. Everybody's out there trusting in their physical strength, you know, or not trusting in their physical strength. They're walking along trying to get exercise, you know, which is good. I'm not, I'm not down on that. That's a good thing. But we trust in our bank account. We trust in our financial statements. We trust in our health. We trust in our position. We trust in our title. We trust in our friends and our, you know, these, all these things we trust in. And God says, you're going to trust in me? I want you to look at a slide of... Uh, guy that many of you may not know, but his name is Muhammad Ali, okay? Uh, I am the greatest, he used to say, which is really kind of a mockery of God because God is the greatest. But he says, I'm the greatest. Buzz like a butterfly, sting like a bee. The hand can't hit what the eye can't see. You know, that was Muhammad Ali. Uh, but this is Muhammad Ali in his prime, and over there is Muhammad Ali as a shell of his former self. When he lit the torch at the 1996, I think it was, Olympic Games, he was in uh, uh, advanced stage of Parkinson's. And he was just, he, he could barely, I mean, he could barely hold the torch over the, the, the thing to get it lit. It's a testimony to our frailty. And God says to us in this text, you righteous people, look, all of the world, look, I know what's going on. And you trust in these things, but here's who you should be trusting in. You should be trusting in me. Verse 18, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Do you see the contrast? He's aware of everybody. Hey, moms, you go to the playground, right? You take your kids to the playground, and there's other moms in the playground or in the park. Whose kids do you see? Everybody's kids. But whose kids do you really see? 
Mm -hmm. Your kids, you know where they're at. You look at them, you got your eye. I mean, and if one of them cries out, boom, your radar is up and you see. God sees his, special, his people. He is there to, to protect us. Or he's there, he sees us, and he's actively aware. We're the children of God, and when we trust, he, he watches over especially those who are trusting in him. Okay, I'm not saying he doesn't watch over, but he draws those who don't know him to himself. Then he would see his protection. Verse 19. To deliver their soul from death. Protection from harm. Isn't it a fascinating thought that God foils the plans of the enemy and of our enemies that are intended to harm us? And many times he does so without our even knowing it. God is at work to protect his people. And he does so, sometimes we're not even aware of it, that he is thwarting the plans of Satan, and he's thwarting the plans of Satan's servants, who are the people who would seek to harm us, and we aren't even conscious of it sometimes. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 is a fascinating verse. He says, Are they not all sent out as ministering spirits, sent to render service on behalf of those who are set apart for salvation? God has his angels watching over us. Angels watching over me, O oh Lord. Stand, angels watching over. It's true. And he protects us. And sometimes we don't even see his protection. Many of those plans are designed to harm us. Is it an accident that not one person lost their life in the recent round of tornadoes? That's a fascinating thing. Angels watching over us. We don't even have a clue what goes on. Sometimes we, uh, we don't see God's plan, but uh, sometimes they're thwarted. You ever think about the fact how many times you could have really been sick, but you weren't? How many fatal accidents you could have had, but you didn't? How many people were intending to harm you, but they never got by with it? You don't even know because God didn't make you aware of it. He didn't make me aware of it. Now, we see, you know, but sometimes God makes us aware of it. J.R., true. Yeah, yeah. Talk to J.R. after the service, you know. When a heavy lawnmower pins you between the ground and the earth with the roll bar on top of you, that's a pretty dangerous spot. God's watching over you. God's taking care of you. God's, then he preserves us. If you look at verse 19, at the end of it, he says, and to keep them alive in famine. God doesn't always deliver us from harm by keeping it from us. Sometimes he takes us through it. And he provides for us or he preserves us in the middle of the harm that we're in. Some of you know the last summer, our youngest daughter and my wife went to Haiti and they, while they were there, Shara got really, really sick. Um, and she had, got so sick that she got so dehydrated that they actually had to take her to the hospital. Now, let me tell you what, folks. Going to the hospital in Haiti is not the place you want to go, okay? But by God's grace, there was a very, very competent physician there and, uh, from, and through friends of ours, and she was taken care of. It was a very miserable experience. But God preserved her through it. He didn't keep her from it. He preserved her through it. And that's sometimes how God works. He preserves us. He preserves us in our loneliness. He preserves us 
in our weakness. He preserves us in and through our sickness, in our sorrow. He provides food for the hungry. He provides a phone call from a friend or they show up to be there, your support and your encouragement. And that's how God works to refresh us. Maybe it's medical treatment. God calls us to praise. He gives us the cause for praise. And then we see finally a commitment to praise God in verses 20 through 22. The tone here is contemplation. We went from celebration and exaltation to just kind of contemplation. He says here, our soul waits for the Lord. I wrote in my Bible, do I wait for the Lord? Our soul, that means our whole being, waits for the Lord. This is a picture of rest. This is a picture of trust. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. Let me read Psalm 46. Uh, my soul waits for the Lord. He's my trust. It's the conviction of the righteous who know a God who is dependable, who is equitable, and who is loyal in his word and in his works. That's who are able to say, my soul waits for the Lord. His God is righteous in light of his conduct, in light of his control, in light of his care. He is our help, the text says. And our pre- so what does the help mean? He is our help. He, he's our pres- preservation and our provision. Remember, it was just the opposite in the, in the previous verses. He was our protection, then he was our provision. Now he's our provision. He is our protection next. He's our shield. That's what a shield does. It protects us, right? He is that to us, to the people causing us to raise the roof because he is our help and our shield. And he is loyal to us. And because of who he is, he's dependable, he's equitable, and he's loyal, we raise the roof. I remember our, I think it was our first flight to Europe as a, as a family. We were going over there on a mission trip, and we're flying a particular airline, and they, they brought a meal, and uh, they, they put the tray table down. You know, they come, you put your tray table down in front of you, on the airplane, and they sat Marla's meal right down in front of her, and her tray table gave way. And so her, you know, and we're just like getting started on this eight-hour flight, and so we were about an hour into the flight, and so then the whole meal spills on her lap. So the stewardess just walked away. Like, oh, that's your problem. I don't sing the praises of that airline. They're not very dependable. They're not very equitable. And they certainly aren't very loyal to their customers. And so I got nothing good to say. But I serve a God who is absolutely dependable in his conduct. He has shown his power and his authority. He's equitable. He is absolutely just and he is loyal. His loyal love is poured out. He, he, he is there with his conduct. He's there with his creation. He's there with his care for his people. That's the God I serve. That's the God you serve if you know him as your Lord and Savior. 
And so we cried to him and say, Lord, as we have trusted in you, we plead with you, as we have trusted you, as we hope in you, we pray that you would come through. <laughs> Don't leave us hanging here, God. Verse 22. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. I don't know if you care about soccer, but the FIFA World Cup was just recently won by France, okay? And the, the people of France put a big party on, you know, for their team as they came home. Big party, big celebration. They raised the roof. This morning, I just bring your attention to Psalm 33 and ask you, how much more should we as believers raise the roof? How much more should we sing and shout joyfully to the Lord because of what He's done for us, because of who He is? It should, we should raise the roof and praise Him because of His, it should be, a, the psalm should be a source of comfort and a source of celebration for us believers. So here's a little challenge for you. Why don't you commit Psalm 33, 18 to memory? Behold the eyes of the Lord upon those who fear Him, on those who hope in His loving kindness. Why don't you meditate a little bit on God's superior conduct? He is dependable and equitable and loyal in all of his work and all of his words, his sovereign control over all of creation and all of what's happening in our lives so that even what is desirable and even that which is difficult can be seen for his ultimate purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ. And think about his special concern. You know that, that song, I, his eye is on the sparrow, but I know he watches me. Read Luke 12. I mean, that's, that's the deal. He knows the number of the hairs on our head, and when a sparrow falls, he knows it. How much more does your heavenly Father care for you? If you don't know Jesus, this psalm should be a psalm of concern. Yeah, he sees me. He knows everything I'm doing. He's like a radar screen, but uh, I miss out on the blessings. I miss out on his special care. I miss out on his protection. Now, that is unless you're one of his chosen ones, and then he's still watching out for you and taking care of you until you come into the fold. But hey, let's not wait. Let's just do it. Repent and turn and trust in him, and then you have cause for rejoice. And one of the ways that, that we at Creekside uh, celebrate uh, God's loyal, faithful love to us is through remembering him through the taking of the bread and the cup uh, at each service. Because these symbolize his body broken and his blood shed for us, which are demonstrations of his loyal love his payment that we deserve. See, at the cross, the demands of God's holiness that require justice against our sin were met in Christ. And that's why we can celebrate and rejoice because that's through faith and trust in Christ we become one of his righteous ones who have cause to celebrate for who he is. There, is, there his mercy was poured out that we might receive it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. You're all invited to join us if you're walking today with Christ, if you're trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I invite you to partake. Our praise team will come, and they'll sing a song, and that when you feel led by the Spirit of God to come, you can take of the bread and the cup. There's two tables up here, one in the back. You don't have to come. You're not shamed if you don't. Uh, during the time that they're singing, I just ask you to examine your heart and uh, get right with God and come and join us in celebration. I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet. 
Savior on that cursed tree. 